You're listening to Fiat Vox, a podcast that gives you an inside look at why people around the world are talking about UC Berkeley. I'm Ann Bryce, a reporter for Berkeley News in the Office of Communications and Public Affairs. When John Patton was in 11th grade, he changed his name to Kwame. He was in biology class at Crenshaw High School in Los Angeles. His teacher had shown the students a book of African names. John and his friends each chose one, just for fun. But when John came to UC Berkeley as an undergraduate two years later, he became Kwame. When I got to Cal, I started to actually use my name, and it was Kwame. And it stuck, instantly. And you, it was natural for you to answer to it? Were there ever times where the people were like, Kwame, and, and you just didn't No! Know? It just no. felt natural. Like it yeah, felt like- yeah, because people said it a certain way that I liked the way I felt when they said Kwame versus John. And 30 years later, Kwame is still Kwame. As an academic counselor for the Educational Opportunity Program and Student Support Services at UC Berkeley, he works with students to help them find their own paths, to dream big and follow their hearts. Amir Wright is a third year student at UC Berkeley. He's a political science major and an ASUC senator. And he's been meeting with Kwame through EOP since he started at Berkeley three years ago. He says Kwame encourages him to take advantage of every opportunity, just to go after it and apply. What's the worst thing that can happen, he asks him. You don't get it, and you move on. So he's been incredibly supportive, just making sure that I am getting the most out of my time here. He would tell me not to let school get in the way of my education. You know what I mean? So just really trying to expand outside of the classroom and learn as much as I can and be in as many spaces as I can. <laughs> when Kwame walks through campus, he knows everyone. I mean, it, it really seems like he does. He says it's because he's been on and off campus for 30 years, but it's more than that. He makes people feel good. I like people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like people. Exactly. Oh, see this? You see this? <laughs> As a counselor, Kwame tells students to follow their dreams, even if it doesn't turn out exactly how they thought it would. It's advice that has guided Kwame since he was a kid, following his passions and bucking the norms, even when his own life was at risk. The power of my ancestors flowed through my voice, so it's my choice to take a stand. Don't call me John, I'm an African, Carolina Cherokee, rock, rock hard. Growing up an only child, Kwame yearned for siblings. He lived with his mom in Brooklyn, New York, in a small brownstone apartment. She was a costume designer and seamstress with dreams of having a play of her own on Broadway. To keep himself company, Kwame imagined these little pet mice. I used to call them mices, and that's a distinct memory from my childhood. Those were my friends. Yeah, all the way up until, hmm, maybe... Seven, eight years old, yeah. When Kwame was in second grade, he and his mom left behind city life for his mom's hometown, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Very kind of rural, uh, rural existence in North Carolina. Slow, it's just so slow. But Kwame figured out how to liven it back up. Yo, this is Street, let's serve. In middle school, he started listening to hip-hop and learned to break dance. 
The Big Backyards in North Carolina gave Kwame and his friends a space to practice their drops, headspins, and windmills. It was the early 80s. They were b-boys, part of this growing counterculture of people who wore flashy clothes and rejected oppressive mainstream society. But after a few years, his mom wanted out of her hometown. So they packed their bags once more and drove across the country to Los Angeles. It was a place where fitting in meant joining a gang. And not fitting in could mean death. Man, we moved to L.A. and this kind of uh, gangster culture, which had really died off in the 70s in New York, you know, was like thriving in L.A. Like this, the culture was, the, the gangbang culture was pretty much running, you know, a lot of like the black and brown neighborhoods in L.A., on his second day at Crenshaw High School, Kwame was wearing what he always wore, flashy b-boy clothes, a red Izod shirt, red suede pumas with red and white shoestrings. People are walking away from me as if, like, I didn't take a bath or something. I would sit in class, people would part, and nobody would sit next to me. And I said, what is going on? he soon learned. During the morning break, an older-looking guy in cornrows and on crutches called him over to his table where a bunch of guys were hanging out. They just look like they've gone through stuff in life. And he walks over to me and he says, hey man, can I talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, you know, sure. And he said, uh, no shoes are uh, deaf. And, you know, coming from New York, North Carolina, deaf was like D-E-F. It meant good, like, like you're with it. And, and so I was like, thank you. And then he said, no, I mean D-E-A-T-H. And he pointed at the guys at the table and he said, man, they talking about killing me. Right there, Kwame got a crash course on gang culture in L.A. By dressing in red, he was identifying himself as a blood, a major gang known for its rivalry with the Crips, who wore blue. Kwame knew it was too late for him to blend in at Crenshaw. But at the same time, he didn't really want to fit in. He didn't want to be like everyone else, to be swept up in the gangster way of life. Fitting in at the, at the time period could mean death because then you become uh, affiliated. You become like neighborhood affiliated. You might not be jumped in with a gang, but if you're dressed in a certain way and look a certain way, then uh, yeah, you're affiliated. And so there's expectations that you'll do certain things for the neighborhood. So he mostly stuck to himself. He made a few close friends with other East Coast transplants with their funny accents and haircuts. And he bought turntables with money he earned at his after-school job at Pizza Hut. And that's how Kwame got through school, DJing in his room whenever he could, and with his sights set on college. He always knew he would go to college, but he couldn't predict how it would awaken parts of himself that he never knew were sleeping. At UC Berkeley, Kwame's world opened up. After taking his first intro course in the African American Studies Department, he knew that he'd found his home. He always loved learning, but this was the first time that he was being taught material from a Black perspective. 
African-American studies changed my life. It confirmed a lot of things, answered a lot of questions I had about myself, about the world. He read Beloved by Toni Morrison, James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh, it just blew me away to learn about the resources that come from Africa, about colonialism. Like, I didn't know about colonization of the Americas. Even though we learned that in history, it wasn't put to me from an indigenous or an African-American perspective. So I never fully was able to digest it in a way that made sense to me. The campus had an energy that lifted him up, that made him feel like he was a part of something bigger than himself. He finally felt like he belonged to a community. Uh, The campus was so diverse. Well, for black folks alone, we were 11% at the time. And like, unlike now, it was common to see uh, a lot of black students from public schools, you know, coming from places where it's a lot of black people. Now you'll see black students who come from places where they used to be in the only black person. His professors became like an extended family, always pushing him to be his best. When he graduated four years later, he went on to get a master's degree from Columbia and then came back to teach African studies at Berkeley High School. A year later, when his former major advisor at UC Berkeley told him that she was leaving her position and that he should apply for it, he jumped at the opportunity. I said, oh, are you kidding? I mean, it was a dream job for me because she was so pivotal, like in my transition into like life, grad school. So I just kind of wanted to do everything she did for me and what, how I saw her interact with other students. I just wanted to do that. So at 25, he came back to campus as the major advisor for African-American studies and dove into being the best mentor he could be. He planned black graduation, which more than 6,000 people attended. And one year, he even got famous defense lawyer Johnny Cochran to speak. Yeah, so I was on fire with that job. Yeah, it was a high point in my life. (laughs) It was a high point. He didn't know that by 30, he would quit everything and soon find himself struggling to survive as an artist in L.A. After four years as an advisor, Kwame felt like he'd done everything he'd set out to do in that role. His mentor, Professor Veve Clark, encouraged him to apply to the African American Studies PhD program so that he could become a professor of hip-hop, something that she just knew he'd be good at. He applied and he got in. But at the same time, he had just released his first album, Don't Call Me John, with ABB Records. It took off overseas. He got all kinds of offers to perform that he had to turn down. But when the Oakland hip-hop group Souls of Mischief asked Kwame to DJ for them on tour to Australia and Japan, he had to do it. So in 2001, Kwame quit the PhD program and set out to make a name for himself as DJ Superstar Kwamala. I love the whole being on the road. I love the non-stop. I love the on the go, not knowing where you're going to eat, meeting new people every five minutes. It was everything about it was me. Everything. After the tour, he moved back to L.A. to try to make it as a DJ. 
He poured his heart and soul into making his dream happen. And instead of feeling alienated like he did before, Kwame felt at home. Now I appreciate it going back because this is my first time really coming back to live in L.A. since I left for high school. So I was like, you know, I, I actually miss, I miss the gang banging. I miss all the stuff I couldn't make sense of. Like, I, I get it. I'm kind of homesick. As the months went by, though, he just wasn't getting the break he'd been hoping for. And he started running out of money. He got desperate. He started drinking alcohol when he'd never even tasted it before. He asked his friends to help him sell drugs so that he could pay his rent. It was a really low point in his life, he says, but also a moment that forced him to look at himself in an honest, raw way. Yeah, it felt like a lifetime within three years. Yeah, yeah, I grew up. I grew up. And more than anything, I learned, I took the time to learn and look at myself in ways I hadn't looked at myself. What did you aspire to? Like, what What were you... To, to stop complaining, stop whining. I didn't even realize I was whining. Stop seeing myself as a victim. Uh, learn how to work hard. Yeah, I just, like, I just really had to grow up. Mm. Yeah, I had to get tough. Spiritually tough, emotionally tough, physically tough, everything. After three years of giving it all he had, Kwame knew he couldn't keep going. It was time to leave L.A. He called Bebe Clark and she invited him back to Berkeley to lecture on hip-hop. So in 2005, feeling like a failure, he went back to his alma mater to build himself back up. Working with students, it turned out, helped him realize that he actually had something to teach. As a lecturer, Kwame channeled the mentors who changed his life as an undergrad. He wrote his own curriculum, pulling from his experiences in L.A. He brought in guest speakers, hip-hop artists, record label owners, entertainment lawyers. Every class, he says, he'd be pacing the floor like he was giving a TED Talk. Chalkboard would be filled so students would be on the edge of their seat for the whole two hours. It was uh, a storybook. I loved it. And and then I, I realized... You're a teacher. It's okay. You know, after that first semester, I started to come down off of my, (laughs) you know, like entrepreneurial hype. Like, you're actually a great teacher. There's nothing wrong with it. In 2017, Kwame published his first book called The Power of Letting Go about his journey of self-discovery in L.A. and how he learned to let go of fear, ego and time. He also developed a class called Investigating Life Journeys, designed to help students learn about themselves, their beliefs, and why they had them. And I said, why would you learn, spend all these years learning in-depthly about subject matter, people outside of yourself, if you don't know who you are? Recently, Kwame started his own company called Gig Brothers, where he works with the best DJs around, setting up and taking down their sound equipment for them. He hopes that when his five-year-old son Roscoe is older, he'll run the business with his dad. After Kwame retires, he says he's going to write a book about his time at Berkeley. Yeah, no, I'm excited. It's going to be juicy. (laughs) 
Talking to Kwame, you can hear nostalgia in his voice. Nostalgia for different places that became home over the years, and nostalgia for how things were. What do you want people to remember you by, or, or when they think of you, how, what do you want them to think? Hmm. Ah, the first word that came to my mind was soul. Like, uh, I just loved growing up in the 70s. I used to use the word soul a lot, you know. Uh, yeah, I've just tried to be soulful. Yeah, just be a soulful brother. Yeah, just kind of speak from the heart, move from the heart, you know, interact with people through my heart. So, yeah, he's a soulful brother. That's it. <laughs> For Berkeley News, I'm Ann Bryce. You can subscribe to Fiat Vox on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more news from UC Berkeley, you can visit news.berkeley.edu. And if you have a great story idea, send us an email at news at berkeley.edu.